Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Well, good morning. Just a few moments ago, Pastor Sean read to us from Psalm 24. That's the psalm that we'll be speaking on this morning as we continue the sermon series. The past two Sundays, we've spent time studying Psalm 23, probably the most memorized and most quoted psalm in the Bible. It, of course, is a psalm that speaks of Jesus as our compassionate shepherd. Psalm 22, the psalm right before it, is a psalm that talks about Jesus' role as our suffering Savior. And then today, as we look at Psalm 24, we'll see a psalm that is about Jesus as our glorious King. All three of these psalms were written by King David, and all of them have our Lord Jesus, David's royal descendant, as their main theme. They all three go together to give us a broad picture of our Lord. Psalm 24 was a psalm that David probably wrote for a special occasion, possibly to celebrate his own entry into Jerusalem to reign as king, or possibly to celebrate the time when he brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city as its resting place. However, no matter how important and moving the transport of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem by David may have been, it is not nearly as significant as the single occasion on which much later the true King of Glory actually did enter the Holy City. I'm referring, of course, to the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, the day we call Palm Sunday. Interestingly, the Jewish historians from that day tell us that in the Jewish liturgy or customary worship of that day, Psalm 24 was always used in worship on the first day of the week. The first day of the week is our Sunday, of course. So putting these facts together, we may assume that these were the words being recited by the temple priests at the very time the Lord Jesus Christ mounted a donkey and ascended the rocky approach to Jerusalem. The people who were outside the walls, who were approaching Jerusalem with Jesus, exclaimed as it's written in Matthew 21.9, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Inside the temple, the priests were likely intoning or reciting verses 9 and 10 from the psalm. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Now, when Jesus came into the city that first time, the crowd shouted 
and celebrated, but it didn't last long. He didn't come that first time to take up his rule, but rather to give his life for us on the cross. In a short time, the crowds began shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But he came that first time in order to pay the debt for our sins so that his redeemed people would come with him in the glory of his reign at his second return to the city. I believe that King David was writing about that second return in this morning's psalm. In it, he gives us a picture of the glory of our Lord's next triumphant entry into the city as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. One other point I'd like to make before we begin examining these verses as, is that this psalm is truly a messianic psalm. It's not always easy when dealing with the psalms to know which ones are for sure messianic, that is, which psalms actually prophesy something about the Messiah to come. Often the psalms use language about natural situations or events. For example, they may speak of a king. But we might wonder, are we to think of the king as King David or one of the human descendants of King David? Or is this rather a veiled or indirect reference to the king of kings, that is, to Jesus? Since it's not always easy to tell which is the case, we have to be cautious when we draw Christian allusions or teachings from these essentially Jewish poems. But I don't believe we have such a problem with this psalm. Some psalms may be ambiguous, but how can a psalm be ambiguous that speaks of opening the gates of Jerusalem to the Lord, that is Jehovah, to the King of glory, or to the Lord Almighty? Here, I feel there is no ambiguity at all. You could say that Psalm 24 is divided into three parts. Verses 1 and 2 speak about the power of the all-creating God and also that earth is God's. Verses 3 through 6 ask who may come before the all-holy God. And finally, verses 7 through 10 describe the coming of the all-victorious King. So first, consider how it teaches us about, number one, worship of the Creator through contemplation. In verse 1, David writes, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. In your copy of the scripture, notice how the word Lord is in all capital letters. That's the translator's way of showing you that this is speaking of the most sacred name of God, Yahweh, the name of the covenant-keeping God of Israel. David is saying that all the world and all the people who dwell upon it are his possession. These opening verses are telling us that although for a time God did, in a sense, tie his earthly presence to Jerusalem, that God is God of all the earth. David's audience was primarily Jews. Most of this psalm describes God and the people of God coming to Jerusalem. It would be easy for them to think or conclude that God is, in essence, a Jewish God, or that he is for Jews only, or that somehow he loves Jews more than other people. 
David's focus was to show that God possesses everything. Not only all the material substance of this earth, but also all people and all nations and all governments and all institutions that exist and operate upon it. We would say that uh, our Lord, uh, everything belongs to Him. We would say the obvious answer is that that is the case. And in verse 2, speaking of this world, David wrote, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. This most likely refers to Genesis 1-9, where we're told that God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. That was the origin of the earth upon which humankind dwells. God created the habitable world of mankind and all living things and all of the rest of his work upon this earth went on from there. Our Lord Jesus who came into the city of Jerusalem that first time, is that very same Creator God, walking upon the earth in human flesh. In the mystery of the Trinity, He is Creator along with His Father. He walked on this earth and yet made it Himself. As the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1, 16 and 17, speaking of the Lord Jesus, For by Him... All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Later on in the psalm, we'll see that Jesus rode into Jerusalem that first time to die on the cross for us, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he did so as the creator of all. David goes on to speak about, number two, worship of the Savior through consecration. In verse three, David asks, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? The hill of the Lord is Jerusalem and specifically the place of David's rule. This speaks of the place of governmental authority. And his holy place speaks of the place of worship. The temple was not yet built at the time that David wrote these words, but the Ark of the Covenant was there, and the worship of God was centered upon that hill in Jerusalem. So this speaks of the center of both civil and spiritual authority. And David asked the rhetorical question, who shall ascend to that hill, the hill of the Lord, and rule there? Or who may stand in that holy place of the worship of God? Who has a right to approach God in this place or to take the position of authority in it? And David then answered his question in verse 4. He who has clean hands, and a pure heart. Only a holy person can do this. To have a pure heart refers to inward holiness. Our God is a God who sees all things about someone. 
He sees the outside and the inside. And he looks to see hands that are not only clean of sin, but a heart that is pure in his sight. He looks for a whole sanctification, a complete holiness inside and out. Whoever approaches him must be holy through and through. And what's more, David says that such a person must be someone who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Some translations, such as the ESV, say that such a person must have not lifted up that which is false. An idol certainly is a false thing. To lift up one's hand to a false god means someone would also be willing to take up a false promise in their mouths. And our God only lets someone approach him who has a heart that is reverent toward him. One that does not hate him or wish for him to be different in his holy character than he is. Someone who has a heart of reverence toward truth because he is a God of truth. In addition, someone who does not swear deceitfully is someone who has a right relationship to others. He is an honest person. He has not sworn falsely. These words sound very much like what David wrote in Psalm 15, where he said, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never Be moved. I suspect you're like me. When I read these words of David, I realize that I'm not worthy to draw near to God's holy hill or stand in his holy presence. I'm a sinner. I've lifted my, my hand to that which is false many times and have sworn deceitfully. I have not had either clean hands or a pure heart before him. As it says in Malachi 3 2, Who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? I'm guilty and so are you. But Jesus rode into the city that first time in order to pay the debt for our sins so that we sinners can now freely draw near to God. I praise God that Jesus came that first time to die on the cross for us in order to show mercy to us And now whenever someone confesses their sin to the Father and places their trust in the cross of his son Jesus, as David says in verse 5 of the psalm, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You and I do not earn the right to approach God. We cannot. But we receive righteousness in his sight as a gift of his grace through faith in Jesus' cross. In the second part of verse 5, we see the doctrine of justification by faith. It's saying the one who approaches God 
sincerely and trustingly will find salvation in him. This is not salvation by works. It's similar to the case of the tax collector in Jesus' story. Jesus compared him to the Pharisee who approached the temple self-righteously saying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. The tax collector stood at a distance. He was conscious of his sin and would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said that it was this man, rather than the Pharisee, who went down to his house justified. David goes on to say in verse 6, Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. That verse is translated in a variety of different ways in different versions of the Bible. But what is interesting is that it speaks of Jacob. Jacob was the father of the twelve tribes of Israel, but he was also a sinner. His name means supplanter or heel grabber. But nevertheless, he was the one that took hold of God and said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And God did bless him. He changed his name to Israel, which means prince with God. Because God said, you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed in Genesis 32:28. And that's the story for all of us sinners who trust in the cross of Jesus. We are, as it were, the generation of Jacob. We are sinners who seek God's favor by faith. And because of the cross, God declares us righteous. We can draw near to him freely. But these words of King David describe more than what it takes to be able to approach a holy God. They describe the very character of Jesus himself. He embraced full humanity to himself and yet had no sin of his own. He alone has truly clean hands and a truly pure heart. Of him alone can it truthfully be said that he never took up a false thing or spoke a deceitful word. He alone was without sin. And because he was without sin, he could be our Savior. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. He is the only one who has righteousness to enter in and take up the seat in Jerusalem and rule. And so he alone can serve as our priest, our king, forever. It asks the question, who is able to come? And this part sounds very much like Psalm 15, which asks, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? So David has shown us a creator that we can worship and a savior we can worship. And now in the last four verses, we will see the worship of the king through commemoration or 
celebration. In verse 7, David wrote the famous words that you have likely sung or heard sung in George Frederick Handel's great masterpiece, The Messiah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory shall come in. I believe that David is exercising his poetic talents in saying this. He is personifying the gates and doors to the city. They may have been downcast and sorrowful, but now they can lift up their heads and be opened with joy. They are even declared to be everlasting doors because the king is coming. He will reign forever. And in verse 8, David asks, Who is this king of glory? And he answers, The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Many of the psalms seem to have been arranged for antiphonal singing, one voice or one choir asking a question, and another voice or choir answering it. Psalm 24 is quite obviously like this. Verses 3, 8, and 10 ask questions. They could have been sung solo. The other parts are either introductions or responses. They could be and probably were sung by choirs. I think that we get the true effect of this last section of this psalm by thinking of it in this way. In fact, Handel wrote this chorus very much like this, with the sopranos and altos making a statement or asking a question, and then the tenors and basses doing the opposite. It went something like this in Jesus' day. The chorus approaching with the king would sing, Lift up your heads, O you gates, be lifted up, you ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. A voice from within the walls would sing, Who is this king of glory? A spokesman for the king would sing, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. The original approaching chorus would sing, Lift up your heads, O you gates, lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The voice from within would sing, repeating the former question, who is he, this king of glory? And then finally, everyone would sing, The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. It's easy to get excited about something as beautiful and moving as this liturgy, this worship to the king. But we need to remember that the priests and people of Jesus' day, though they sang it, did not really do what they were singing. In a sense, they did. They let Jesus into the city and then into the temple area where he threw out the money changers. But although they let him in, they did not actually let him in. That is, they did not let him into their hearts and lives. That's the way he really wants to come in, of course. He wants to come into your life to save you and change you. The way for you to respond is to let the king come in. Spurgeon wrote, It is possible that you are saying, I shall never enter into the heaven of God, for I have neither clean hands nor a pure heart. Look then to Christ, who has already climbed the holy hill. He has entered as the forerunner of those who trust him. Follow in his footsteps and repose upon his merit. He rides triumphantly into heaven, and you shall ride there too if you trust him. 
But how can I get the character described, say you? The Spirit of God will give you that. He will create in you a new heart and a right spirit. Faith in Jesus is the work of the Holy Spirit and has all virtues wrapped up in it. You know, we would be making a big mistake if we thought the second coming of our Lord will be peaceful and joyful for everyone. It will not be. The Bible teaches us that the world will be under the sway of the devil when our Lord returns. The Antichrist will have temporary rule over the nations, and he will send the armies of the world out against King Jesus. In Zechariah 14:3 and 4, we're told, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. He comes to fight. So no, the return of our Lord to this earth will not be welcomed by the ungodly of this world. It will not be peaceful. Far from it. The nations of this earth will turn their weapons upon him, but he will be victorious. Because as King David said, King Jesus is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. And then as Zechariah 14.9 says, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one. And perhaps to bring emphasis to it all, King David saying the same thing again. In verse 9 he wrote, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors. And the king of glory shall come in. And once again, in verse 10, he asks, who is this king of glory? And once again, he gives the answer to his own question. And this time his answer is, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. The word hosts can mean an army. And indeed, the Bible tells us that Jesus will return with an army of mighty angels ready for battle. But this word can also refer to a vast number of people. And who is this vast number of people that comes with him? Who constitutes this host that join with him in his return? It's us. In Revelation 19, in that wonderful passage that tells of his return, we read these words. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you see how in that passage we're told about the armies in heaven that follow him? clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's the bride of Christ. 
the saints who, as it tells us in Revelation 9.8, are granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That's speaking of us who are in Christ. As it says in Revelation 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This, I believe, describes the hosts that King David speaks of when he writes that our King Jesus takes up his reign as the Lord of hosts. I'd like to ask our music team to come now as I make this final point. I hope that in the future, when we celebrate Palm Sunday, we'll continue to celebrate it and think of these things that we spoke of today. And we tend to celebrate that first ride into the city. And we should celebrate it. It is the story of our redemption. Jesus came that first time to die for us on the cross. But David's song reminds us that there is a second triumphant entry yet to come. The first triumphant entry into the city was the one that makes the glories of the second entry even more triumphant. I hope those of you listening today have placed your faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I hope that you truly celebrate the sacrifice he made for us. Because if you do, like David, you will have every reason to sing the glories of our King's future reign. Let's pray.